worried that you might be the cool kid You wear the latest fashions on top of all the trends Or have you ever worried you were too much in the mainstream Always so generic, more normal than your friends Well, we've devised a test to put to rest your fears There's no need to panic if you lend us your ears Tonight you can't sleep easy after all that you've heard Cause if you like the show, then you're probably a nerd Episode of the It's Canon Podcast, the show and podcast where we talk about all things geek, all things pop culture, anything, everything, because it is all in canon. We're your hosts. I'm Boris, and I'm joined by Phil. I'm going to join the crowd and become subdued, Phil. <laughs> and Tyler. I am riled up and ready to go, Tyler, today, so it'll be a good time. I love it. I love it. And it is a special episode. In the last episode, we did say that we wanted to go in-depth. We feel that we put out a better product when we go in-depth on certain subjects. We know, I know as a fact, that the audience likes it when we go in-depth with certain subjects. So that's exactly what we're going to be doing here today. We're going to be talking court cases, Marvel, Marvel's past, creators, creator contracts, and everything and I think as the resident expert in this domain, it's only natural that Tyler gets us going. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So not only are we going to touch on Marvel, we've actually, we have to touch on some other funny stories, including news from just today. So we're also going to talk about the Toronto Eaton Center, Jason oh. Voorhees, and the International Burn Convention. Love it. Love it. What we're talking about today is a, two sets of, of legal cases that are going on right now. So very recently, the estates or individuals, because I think two of them are still alive. One of them's still alive. This is one of the few things I didn't write down. Uh, but the estates or the individuals for Ditko, Stan Lee, Don Rico, Don Heck, Gene Colan, and Larry Lieber have all filed suit for notice of termination of copyright against Disney. Mm. By contrast, Disney has in turn filed five suits against Lawrence D. Lieber, Patrick S. Ditko, Michelle Hart Rico, and Buzz Donato Rico III, Nancy Solo and Eric Colon, and Keith A. Detweiler. Uh, basically, they are arguing that there's not a question here. We want these people to stop suing us. Yep. Yeah. Yes. They basically argued the Kirby case, because the Kirby case was decided at a court of appeal, is currently valid law, and to Disney's credit, in this instance, if we agree that's valid law, we agree that that's what the law should be, then yes, none of these people have a case, and we can all go home. Right. So, essentially, they're hmm. saying there's been precedents set, hence, therefore, back off, get your own sandwich. Yes. And then... The very summation of the counter case is really put the best by their lawyer, who uh, Boris and I are actually vaguely familiar with because it is one Toberoff. 
who also represented the Kirby estate in the 2014 case. Yep, which we talked about in the incarnation of this very show with our old friend, Kyle. Kyle. But yeah, so Tobaroff is back. He's back for another round against Disney. And quoting him here, he says that at the core of these cases is an anachronistic and highly criticized interpretation of work made for hire, which needs to be rectified. So this is an instance where uh, Tobaroff does not have the facts and Tobaroff (laughs) does not have the law on his side. But to quote... But to quote a lot of really old, really famous lawyers who've won a lot of cases, if you don't have the facts, argue the law. If you don't have the law, argue the facts. And if you have neither, bang the table. So there's going to be a lot of table banging. <laughs> Already there's a lot of table banging. Yeah. Well, we're going to... Yeah. It's, it, it actually is amazing to me that you've put in a, you know, a little bit of research a little bit of, of reading, right? And you've come to this, you know, at this spot in the dissertation or the, the exploration of this topic, you've come to this spot. Yes. Never mind that the representation hasn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, no, he knows. Oh, no, yeah. Tobaroff knows. The, 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 this is a weird instance of I agree with everyone who's involved in this case. Mm. I agree with Disney. Disney's correct. If we go by the current rules and we don't change any of the rules, Disney's right. These people have no case. Right. Tobaroff is arguing these rules are bad rules and we should change them. Okay. Which, that's how law works sometimes. Sometimes you're allowed to say, like, yes, these are the rules. We all agreed these are the rules. However, we can now see they're stupid rules. Yeah. Now, question question for you, Tyler. If... yeah. They back off right now. They change the rules, and now the rules are in their favor. Can they go back and sue again? Or would part of this be saying, no, you can't sue us again, but we will move forward with trying to change something? So that's actually an interesting case, and it depends how the law is worded. So one of the big dates that is super freaking important for all this that we're going to talk about a lot is 1978. So uh, this brings me to the Copyright Act of 1976, when the U.S. Congress changed how copyright laws work. Uh, and prior, and then it became into effect in 1978. So the Kirby estate was actually suing under the pre-78 rules. Because the way law works is... Unless the law explicitly says it changes the rules in these other instances, you go by the rules that were in place when the agreement was signed. Oh. So, for example, if you want to sue someone for a law and the law changes during your, your suit, the assumption is we look at the law at the time the suit was started. Yeah. Okay. And that's, yeah, it's a great question. It's the thing that people get confused and wrong a lot because yeah you're right if they changed it right now um unless they specifically say something like if they say like hey in the future because the default would be in the future here's the new rule for determining if something can get its copyright back or not none of these people would have a chance under the new rules yeah it has to retroactively say also 
we are changing the definition of what work for hire is, which is really at the core of this entire goddamn thing. Yeah. Right. Before we can talk about work for hire, we got to talk about moral rights and copyrights. <laughs> yeah. Which brings us to the Eaton Center. Uh, Phil, Boris, you've been to the Eaton Center, right? Of course. I have. Do you know the sculpture Flight Stop? No. Can't recall it. I don't. Don't know it by name. Yeah. Do you know all of those Canada geese sculptures hanging from the ceiling? Yes. Mm-hmm. That is actually a sculpture called Flight Stop by one Michael Snow. Hmm. And it is one of the most important cases in Canadian law about moral rights. So moral, moral rights are separate from copyrights. And they are, basically, if you make a thing, you have certain rights that you cannot sell even if you want to. Yeah. And we all have agreed because this is the Berne Convention, and then Canada has agreed to it, and the U.S. has agreed to it. You know, for example, that's why Marvel has to say, these are the people who helped make these characters. Those are moral rights. No matter how much you get paid, you always get to be the person who created X, Y, or Z. The corporation just can't say, it's ours because we contracted somebody to make it, therefore it's ours. The moral rights say they have to accredit the creator. Yes. Okay. Those can get a little bit funky because you can technically, in some jurisdictions, sign a contract agreeing to not enforce your moral rights. Right. But you still have them. Right. You'd have to go to court to exercise. Yeah. If they're in, in you know, not and, following that code. And they sue you and then lawsuits. Yep. Yeah. So the case for the Eaton Center was uh, one year. In the halcyon days of 1981, the management of the Eaton Center put red ribbons around the necks of all those geese. Why? Why? It was Christmas. I know, but who wants a goose with a ribbon on its neck? (laughs) Look, here's the funnier part. Michael Snow freaked out. Yep, I I knew exactly where this was going. And he argued that changes the message and the the idea behind the art. Okay. And the Supreme Court agreed with him. And that's part of moral rights is you, if let's say you create a thing, you have some rights to limit what can be done with it. Interesting. The other, the, the other case that gets discussed a lot is actually the hypothetical of Bill Watterson. So all those bits that are made of like Calvin peeing on things. Yeah. Technically, even if that has been licensed, which most of them aren't, Bill Watterson can say that actually violates my moral rights. Right. Yeah. Because you are, you're, you're turning Calvin from, you know, a precocious, frustrated young child to angsty and anger. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's peeing on the Columbus crew logo. I get it. Yeah, or whatever they have peeing on now. Yeah, so yeah. The, the thing of du jour. Yeah, we decided to talk about moral rights to be like, none of that's what we're talking about. That's just not what we're talking about. All these people are getting credit. This is copyright, and copyright yep. is just a question of money. Mm. So, starting distinction. Yes, and we had to touch on it because that's the separate issue, and some people claim various moral rights have been violated 
but no one's suing over that because it's really hard to put a dollar sign on those. Yeah. You put a ribbon on it. You put a ribbon on it, and then Michael Snow can freak out. I mean, that's my favorite bit, is how much of law is made of just rich people having hissy fits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it keeps lawyers going, right? Like, that's... <laughs> yeah. Like the smart ones are the lawyers and all this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I got to do a quick bit on copyright, the Copyright Act. So, I'm going to try to go quick. Basically, after 1938, uh, various creatives, it was originally done for artists, sorry, for recording artists and songwriters to claw back previously licensed work after 35 years. So, in that instance, let's say you were Taylor Swift. You had written a bunch of songs. This is a hypothetical where Taylor Swift isn't a singer or wrote songs that she did not herself sing. She wrote all these songs and then sold them, and Nicki Minaj became obscenely famous off of them. After 35 years, Taylor Swift would be able to go back, file a notice of, top, of copyright termination, and be like, I get rights to all those songs back. Oh, you can't sell them anymore. So like Prince is a prime example of somebody who wrote a lot of songs. Yes. And his estate might try something like this when the time comes. Yeah, I believe for Prince specifically, they have negotiated this already. Um, In part because they... Part of the purpose of this is not to be able to let Ditko come in or the Ditko estate and say, Disney, you can't make a Doctor Strange movie anymore. The mm-hmm. idea is really, Disney's already in the best position. Disney already can make so much money. This is to give Ditko another round of negotiations. Yeah. Okay. And we're talking about Steve Ditko a lot today. But the idea being, if Steve Ditko was still alive, and he wanted his money for making Doctor Strange, like he claims he did, and the court agreed, you made Doctor Strange, he the idea would be he would sit down at the table with Disney and be like, I can take this ball and go home. Let's let's talk numbers. And the idea being that in 90% of cases, they would negotiate a better deal. Steve Ditko would get some percentage of ticket sales or whatever. And everyone goes home happy. And it really was the idea was to protect creatives who sold stuff when they had no leverage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, down the road, be able to get their money back. Well, that seems fair. It sucks that you got to leverage lawyers and everything into it, but I guess there has to be some application of logic. <laughs> yeah, well, it's also, you know, how do you enforce anything becomes a question. Here's where it gets finicky. There are exclusions to this. Oh, no. And then there are exclusions to the exclusions because we have to be complicated. So, this, this termination right has an exception. And that is, you cannot terminate if you made work for hire. And then there's a bunch of rules about work for hire is, basically work for hire means you mm. explicitly agree it's work for hire. You're usually getting paid for doing it. Like, you're not, getting, you're not like writing a script on a wing and a prayer that it gets picked up. This is Disney calls James Gunn says, James Gunn, we want, to do, we want you to do a work-for-hire treatment on Guardians 3. Which he's on, quite literally doing right now. I almost guarantee that's what it is. Yeah. 
so he's he gets you know x amount for writing the script he gets y amount if the script gets accepted z amount for them making the movie yeah everyone's happy in that instance he would not get the money back he can't claim it back because it was done work for hire and that's And then <laughs> they made it more complicated. <laughs> so no longer are all work for hires excluded. Now it's only some work for hires not excluded. And there are nine ways that it can get excluded. The only two we care about for today are collective work and motion picture or audiovisual work. The other ones include stuff like you're a translator, you are part of a compilation. Like if you did one song off of an album, you don't get that that thing back. You sign the license indefinitely. Other ones are like if it's part of an atlas because they don't want every time they want to do a new edition of an atlas, they have to call every single writer and make sure it's okay. Those are the two ones that are going to get us. So one of the questions that we have to ask is, are comics a collective work? Interesting. What do you think, guys? I would have to say probably no. I'm going to choose the opposite and say yes. Why do you say no, Boris? Um, <clears throat> huh. Why do I say no? That's a great question. Um, I would have to say just the way that they define what a comic book is. Wouldn't that eventually lead to this? Like what the right answer is? What do like you mean? In, in terms of, you know, being a creator. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, they, you, you being assigned the writer, you being assigned the inker, you being assigned whatever... That is your job in said book. And while it, mm-hmm. in my head, it would make sense for it to be a collective, because you were assigned that role, that's, you know, that's your contribution to it, and that's it. Oh, you're so close. You're so closing it so far. What about you, Phil? Oh, it just seems to me like you've got a collaboration going on, and you have a collaboration, like a collective idea mm-hmm. on what you're publishing. Phil's got it for us. Yeah. And you're publishing it month after month, right? Like, so monthly you're basically doesn't matter. saying, oh, yeah, okay, whatever yeah. time frame. But you're saying this is something we're creating and this is something we're going to make on an ongoing basis, possibly. Yeah. It's, it's multiple people all contributing to a work they've all been hired to do. Ooh, Boris got it right. He just had the. Boris right. was so close, but got to the wrong conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the fact that Marvel is assigning it. Or if it was one of the writers hired everyone else, you know, if it was an indie comic, if it was Spawn and McFarlane hired everyone else work for hire, still still McFarlane's baby, even yeah. though he's one of the writers or one of the artists or whatever. Hmm. Ugh. You see, I'm wrapping my head around, and I know a lot of our listeners probably have this in their own workplace. I know Boris yep. probably does. Where every year you got to go through the whole um the clauses you have to uh-huh. review the clauses in your company and one of them that i always dote over is the fact that 
anything that we generate while working for X company, X tech company or whatever, yep, is technically the property of our company. It's yes. not anything that we created. Like, in like it's mm-hmm. just got these funny words in the well, definitions where it's like, more we so. can't claim it. You can't get it back. It's ours. More so. Even if you more so. There's NDAs around the fact that you can't even talk yes. about you helping create XYZ. Yeah. Yes. You're both right. The the funny thing is, is this this work for hire specifically is a case of magic words make law. Yeah. Um, and I'd be really curious, and I'm not gonna ask you because I don't want you guys to get in the weird situation of having to answer, but listeners as well, think about whether or not your contract, when it says that includes the phrase work for hire because in most jurisdictions if it does not explicitly say it's work for hire the assumption is that it's not so if for example you work on a comic and they do not specify it's a work for hire contract you might get all that back yeah yeah exactly but that's that's the you know and I'm using air quotes when I say the beauty of the law, right? And the beauty of contract writing is that if it's not there, you can assume everything of the opposite. Yep. Well, yeah. For lack of a better term. I don't know if I no, worded I properly, but you know what I mean, right? It, it has to be yeah. explicitly stated or else. Oh, yeah. You you would get in trouble at law school, but I'm not going to get mad at you here for that. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, but you're you're right. And, and, and you know, I, I am a person who thinks that using magic words in law is is bad like it's a bad habit for for lawyers and for like how we structure a legal system like having to be like well these three words magically change the intent it just it creates more it creates work for lawyers and it guarantees and safeguards a level of expertise that is based on jargon rather than being good at your job loophole lawyering <laughs> it's part of it yep well it is it is and you know I, I know you have legal training um i'm not having a shot at lawyers per se but i know that the predominant feeling amongst a lot of people is about that but to be fair it's an industry and i'm not offended by the fact that lawyers thrive in industry that they create oh sure yep exactly um yeah I write contracts all day, SOWs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's mind numbing sometimes, uh, when I get to the legal review, um, luckily I've always done a half decent job on them, but like, it's just, you know, you just get used to it, beauty well, of was, using templates and whatnot, but, and that's, I was going to say, what? I was going to say, how much of it's just a template and you're really only <laughs> changing maybe four or five clauses and you're just like. Well, we don't need this clause, but we do need this clause from my big template that I'm drawing from. Yeah, that's exa- there's all the legal mumbo jumbo around it that I, I shouldn't change. Um, and then, you know, and, and, and there's obviously the things that I do need to change. The offer, for example, like, you know, what actually are we executing? The acceptance, you know, it's, it's, it's um, you know, what is the, you know, the, 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 the acceptance criteria for said work and then obviously the consideration which is the money part and you know that obviously changes because the number of hours changes and for our listeners when i say an sow i mean i mean a statement of work so it's basically the company that i work for will put services or something to 
give to our customers. So for example, they might want a custom code for XYZ. We will make it for them. It has to go through the legal process. Mm -hmm. Hence, therefore, we need an SOW to execute the work. Yeah. And, and, and that's actually, an interestingly enough, nope. interestingly enough, we also have in every contract an intellectual property item in these contracts because <laughs> we have to explicitly state who owns this custom code, who yep. owns like... And, and, and this is where it can get a little interesting with some customers. For example, some of our bigger Fortune 500, Fortune 500 yep. customers, they want to own it. They Not only do they want to own it, they don't want us to use a single line of code ever again for another customer. Yep. For wow. reasons. For reasons. Yeah. yeah because for reasons. The reason why in their, their mentality is basically we're asking this from this company because this is going to give us a leg up to make our process easy. Fuck everyone else. Yep. Well, and they yeah. want to, they want to secure their advantage in, in the market. Exactly. Right? Yeah. hundred percent. And, and a lot of that it's worth belaboring is all the thing that companies do and freelancers do less, but they should make sure to do is the contract is only worth something if you take it to court. Right. And a lot of people in non-tech industries, definitely I I've worked in quite a few where you start to see contract slippage. Mm. Where it's stuff of like, I mean, the contract says payment in 90 days, but we're going to pay at 180 and we're not going to pay the interest and they're not going to sue us over it. And it's fine. Yeah, that happens a lot. Because, yeah, I mean, payment terms especially, but even like other stuff of like, yeah, we, we sub-licensed this design out and it's technically our contract didn't allow it, but I called Steve and he said it was okay. And strictly speaking, you should get all that written down in case someone takes you to court. But if you yep. never go to court, none of it matters. Yep. It's funny. Now that we're talking about all this, you know what I'm thinking of? That um, mm. company that we used to deal with a lot on this show and those contracts, those bullshit contracts oh. that they had for creators. I mean, th those contracts were... <sighs> those contracts were likely often blatantly illegal. Mm-hmm. To the point where, <laughs> and I could talk about this because it's widely known, uh, they showed up on a, a like a Judge Judy type show, <laughs> not Judge Judy, but a Judge Judy type show, and the TV judge told them that their IP rule, like their IP claims, were ludicrous. Yep. yep. And they lost the case on television. Yep. Yep. Yeah, funny that. Yeah. But let's talk about. Portland for a second and the importance of work for hire. Dad, if you remember the movie Body of Evidence, it's a Madonna film. Oh, Paramount Pictures. 19, I, I don't remember the details. You don't need to. You need to remember it takes place in Portland. So in Body of Evidence, there's a very famous shot of the Portland building. Um, alternatively called the Portland Municipal Services Building. Okay. I think it's a really ugly building. Its color scheme is a very... It's pink, brown, and green. Mm. However, 
they made a statue called Portlandia that is on top of the main entrance to the Portland building. Okay. Everything seems fine, right? They hired him to make a statue. He made a statue. I'm getting the feeling somebody put a a ribbon on a Canada gooseneck. It's it's not even that much. Oh, we did. It's not even that much happened. Wow. Body of evidence was made. And Raymond Caskey, the artist who made Portlandia, sued Paramount Pictures. Because the city of Portland forgot to make that contract work for hire. Oh. So no one's allowed to take a picture of that. No one's allowed to include that in any non-fair use without getting his permission, which means without paying him. Here's an interesting one also. To the same vein, um, wrestlers. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. You know where I'm going with this because you've seen a lot of these court cases and you're going to see this a lot more with celebrities and whatnot. Um, the more tattoos they have, you know, and wrestling is a pro example of them. They're shirtless half the time. The males, that is. Yeah. A lot of them have tattoos. Some of them have very specific tattoos. Um, Some of them have custom made tattoos. Um, and their IP, their image, I shouldn't say IP, their image ends up on video games, for example. Oh, let's, let's back up a second. Who owns the tattoos? That's exactly where we're going with this. Like, let's just start yeah. there. Who owns the okay. tattoos, right? And that's essentially what a lot, a lot, what's happening a lot of the times. Um, the the artist or the tattoo artist, I should say, is suing everyone under the sun because uh, they are having their work featured in video yeah. games, posters, magazines, etc., etc., etc. And now that you know, there's streaming services and content is king and everything is everything is worth a dollar. You know, they want their fair share. And it's not a work for hire contract. Exactly. So legally, they should get it. Yep. Oh, yeah. Wow. Hey. Like to me, the contract implies, though, if you're going in and getting inked. But what did we just say? Implying, like, but yeah. what did we just say? Unless it's, well, it's explicitly not in it. yeah. said in yeah. a contract in a legal contract, you're SOL. So, so also, do you what, have to get a, a contract drawn up in order to get ink? That's the no. world we live in. Technically, right. technically, yes. There is, depending on your jurisdiction, there is a default contract that is always assumed. Mm-hmm. In Canada, every province has the default contract. And every time you pay someone, if there's ever a fight that's the contract we assume unless you agree to something different um in the states i they do it a little bit different i think every single state every has state one. has one yeah but and also there is like a federal one I'm, and then also there's like industry ones yep they're a little they have like a weird convoluted system that i'm not as familiar with because i know industry standards are a bigger issue there than here yep okay for, for determining if a thing is contractually allowed or not. And that's why, like, new industries, especially some certain sectors of tech, they don't know mm-hmm. what to do because wh- what do you assume XYZ services fall under? Oh, yeah. Well, and that's part of how 
that's part of the entire business model of Uber and Airbnb is being undefinable under old laws. Ooh. Ooh. Oh. We can have we Ooh. can dedicate a whole episode on oh, on um on Uber and WWE over employees versus oh. contractors. Mm. I mean, let's get back. I mean, we're going to touch on that a little bit, but let's talk about WWE for one little more bit. Um, and Phil brings up a good point of, you know, let's say that you are tattooing Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Nowadays, you 100%, there's a contract behind that. Right? Yeah. Like, first of all, he's probably not going to some no-name tattoo artist. And I say it with love. I Listeners, I am decently heavily inked. But there's a difference between, you know, your Hollywood tier tattoo artist who's famous versus the person in your local downtown. Yep. They just like, they just is. So they're a hundred percent negotiating those contracts. And yeah, I bet a bunch of those are, but let's say you tattooed Dwayne Johnson when he was 16. Right. And he became super famous. And I use Dwayne Johnson because his tattoos are part of his brand. Mm hmm. I mean, should you not get a cut? Exactly. You technically help create this persona, this brand. So you yep. should. And and you can't. How do you argue a counterfactual of Dwayne Johnson would have been as famous without the tattoos? You can't. Again, because and, now you're we're talking hypotheticals. He became famous. Yeah. One can assume it was because of the help of the tattoos. Like a good lawyer can make that argument. Yep. You can't make the counter argument that without the tattoos he'd be just as popular because we don't know. You, there's yep. there's no there's no you can't throw shit at a wall and hope it sticks on something that hasn't happened on hypotheticals. Yeah, it's now, 100% a counterfactual. So for those questions, yeah, go for it. In, in this scenario, let's say yeah. Dwayne The Rock Johnson goes in and he's pre-designed his tattoo. Oh, mm. yep. Because I know a lot of tattoo artists put their own spin on things. You go yep. in with an idea, they visualize something for you, they get your yep. approval, they put it on your body, then they go and do it with yep. the ink. If he goes in with his own design and gets somebody to do it, does that change the context of this? Partially. So that is very similar to, let's say you did a, a cover for Todd McFarlane. You did right. a Spawn cover. And you don't own anchor. Spawn, but you technically own that cover under whatever your contract terms are. It's the same thing. Right. You know, and it gets a little bit funky if you're doing something like tracing of it's like, well, how transformative is the work you're doing? Freaking tracers. Well, sure. Yeah. And if you're like literally tracing, like, yeah. But if you're tattooing someone, you are actually transforming it from one medium to another. So mm -hmm. I think you could make the case that it is still a transformative work. And in that instance, you would have a claim, but it would be a smaller claim, right? Yep. Interesting. Uh, all of these, because at the end of the day, you know, a judge, if this goes for a judge, they're going to have to try to put a dollar value on it. And generally what I would assume from my research experience is a uniquely, a, a unique design tattoo would get more money than one that was like Dwayne Johnson sketched this and brought it in and they literally just like they did the like 
they did the thing where they print it off and they're able to put the temporary tattoo and they just trace that, mm-hmm. that person would probably get less. Yep. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's artwork. Hey, what can you do? Yep. Like, what can you say? Right? Like, as much as it, it becomes a part of you, and that's I think where the biggest mental block for me is because it's a part of you and you're defining it as your image but they mm-hmm. had input on it they had artistic well, license yeah and that's where it gets like and that's I think a good that's a good example though because like a lot of like spider-man it's the exact same right like yep. spider-man was created and then a lot of people have done different takes and have added to it yeah and all those people have various contracts and rights to various iterations yep right like the person like uh, uh, Bendis creating Miles has more rights to Miles Morales than he does to Peter Parker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, what if? Oh, I, I'm trying yep. to think. How can we? How can I word this? Yeah. Let's say Todd McFarlane. You know he. Okay, so he created Spawn. Um, yeah. Well, I wanna. Well, well, you can you think it over. And yeah. I do a quick bit about image because that's a great tie-in. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So it's worth, one of the big things that I love talking about with this is people like to frame this entire thing in, in the media and in conversations as this is creatives versus business. But it's worth remembering that, first of all, the moment Jack Kirby started hiring people, he used work-for-hire agreements. It's worth yeah. noting that in 1992 that the people who founded Image Comics having having their conniption about work for hire, all of them use work for hire now. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it, like, is, this is just a thing that people do. Like, it was, it was begun with this noble idea of each creator could fully own and control his own characters and determine their destinies, according to Jim Lee of Wildstorm Productions. But everyone involved in Image who is actually like working for one of the big publishers and is working on someone else's project, it's all work for hire. Yep. And it's it's the exact same, like it's everyone just does the exact same model, but smaller. Yep. Hmm. Figure out your question now, Boris? Yeah, so it's it's this one's a hard one just because um, you know, he would never accept this to happen. But let's just say yeah. For lack of a better term, Todd McFarlane has spawned, um, let's say, artist A creates Gunslinger Spawn, and oh, it's no. out there in the public domain. McFarlane doesn't like it. What do we do? Okay. How do we handle that one? Okay, so so this is actually there's actually a case directly on point involving Todd McFarlane. Yep. Uh, so first off, if like first off, we're talking about fan fiction. So strictly speaking, under the current law, I'm sorry, fan fiction people. I know you don't like to hear this. I've yes. gotten in fights with people. Strictly speaking, all fan fiction and all fan art is technically not allowed under copyright. Mm-hmm. A lot of people see the value and recognize the value in letting people do it. Yes. Under the current rules, if Todd McFarlane says no one can do Spawn but him, that's the rules. Well, we've seen publishers go into Artist Alley and hand cease and desist for this very reason. You know, oftentimes, 
they want to control the message. They want to control their brand. For example, you know, you don't want Mario, Peach, and Luigi having a threesome with you know Toadstool in the background and a video camera, right? Like, well, Nintendo that's the type of stuff Some people hundred percent want it. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like, that's the type of stuff that these companies are trying to control with their brand and their image, etc. Mm-hmm. That was the thing with George Lucas, right? You guys can go crazy with doing the fan fiction stuff, but number one, you can't make money off of it. Yeah. And number two, no sex. Yep. Right? Like, here's my moral line. I don't want to see Princess Leia in a gangbang. Yeah. And it gets, you know, it gets complicated because you can talk about whether or not there are what are called open licenses, which are a big thing in the gaming industry where it's like, here is a thing, whether it's a, a designed piece of game design, whether it's a mechanic, whether it's a piece of code. And it's just like, this is open license. Anyone can use it. I don't give a shit. Or there are conditional licenses, which is stuff of like, yeah, if you send me $10, you could use this. And that's how like a lot of fonts are done. Yeah. Like, if right. you want like a fancy font, you're usually paying 10 to $49. And usually it's an unlimited commercial license. Like it's like, you just get that, that font for forever. And then you've got the situation like Epic, which license out its games. And if you start cashing in on it, they yeah. get a return for their game. Unreal Engine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On to Boris's other point, a phenomenal case on this very point, which is Neil Gaiman created the character Angela mm-hmm. as part of Spawn. Spawn number nine. Yeah. And the entire case was basically based around whether or not that was work for hire or not. Yep. And, you know, McFarlane basically said, yep, it was work for hire. That was the whole deal. And Neil Gaiman wins this case because he points out, I mean, that's not the understanding I had, and there's no paperwork saying it's work for hire. Yep. Yep. And the assumption is, if you don't say it, it's not. And that's why Angela is now a Marvel character. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, all this brings us to Tobaroff, and he's arguing that the old work for hire model is bad and bullshit. And one of his contentions is with the what, the so called Marvel model or Marvel method. Do you know what this is? Have you heard this one? They don't do it anymore, which makes it harder to know. It's less of a oil thing. No, I'm not familiar with it. Boris might remember this one. Do you remember the Marvel method? I know we've talked about it. You heard a moment? So, so the Marvel method is not how comics are done anymore. However, this is how Stan Lee especially loved to do comics. Where it would be, the writer would give the artist a synopsis for the story they were working on. And it could be, usually it was about an issue, and sometimes it'd be like two or three issues. They'd be like, yeah, here's the arc we're going to do. I want this, 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 I want this. And they would, like, do that. And the artist would do the entire layout and art from that synopsis, and then the writer would come back in and do dialogue. Yeah. Oof. And in those instances... Under the definition of the era, the artist was just the artist and the writer was the writer. Under a modern definition, most people would give that artist a co-writer credit. Yeah. 
because they are making very definitive decisions. Yep. Yeah. Um, you're, you're contributing to the story. I mean, they're contributing no matter what, but having worked with artists, almost every artist I've worked with says that the more description you give, the easier their job is because the less they have to like actually be creative and figure stuff out, the easier their job is. It's a tough and if job. You, you're interpreting a vision. 100%. Right. 100%. But, you know, it's the difference between uh, an Alan Moore script where each panel has at least a page of text to describe it. And a, oh, shoot, who was it? There's someone else I was reading recently. I was reading their scripts. I think it was Snyder. Snyder's a comic one. American Vampire, because he, Snyder has like page and a half of dialogue. Yes, but I mean like, but his panel descriptions are very sparse. Oh, panel descriptions are, are insane. His are insane. Now, I'm not thinking of him then. I'm thinking of someone. I know I've seen some of Gaiman's can get pretty sparse, but mm. it's like, oh, this person stands over that person. And it's like, where are they? What do you mean they stand over them? Is the one person kneeling or lying down? And yep. and that matters. And Gaiman usually gets away with it because he'll have like, Gaiman tends to front load his description in, in scripts. Tends to. So that helps. But it makes it a little bit harder versus then um, Kirkman is notorious for just extreme of consciousness. So you'll have like contradictory stuff in the description. Yeah. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. I don't want to derail this, but no, no, it's good. Question. Yeah. Because we're talking about art. Yeah. How does this apply to an actor who's ad libbing? Oh, like, what a good does question. That open up like a whole nother Rubik's Cube of stuff because. If you look at certain personalities in acting, yep. yeah. they definitely bring their own brand and their yes. own humor and their own wit yep. to a role. Yes. And you are 100% right. And that is why, by law, movies are exempt from all these rules. Yep. <laughs> That's like, like, yeah, you're right. Movies just, no, these rules apply to movies. It's just like, no way. We're not gonna None of this. this applies. No, if you're part of, if you're anyone other than the writer of the script sometimes everyone else's work for hire okay the writer of the script may or may not be but pretty much everyone else's work for hire okay or movies have a bunch of like their own separate rules because very early on we were like oh movies are really complicated um right. video games are also similar video games count as collective work undeniably they count as collective work so it doesn't matter. You don't get your copyright back if you're work for hire. Yep. So I just figured a lot of our listeners are asking that question too. I, it's a great question. I did touch on it earlier, but you're right. We should have gone deeper on it and basically be yeah. like, yeah, movies, none of these rules apply to movies. <laughs> um, awesome. yeah. Wheels back on. Sorry. No, no, it was a great question. And it comes into, so now we're going to talk about Steve Ditko. Steve Ditko has made over the years and friends of Steve Ditko have made a lot of claims at times Ditko or people on his behalf claim he created Spider-Man, Iron Man and Hulk. Mm -hmm. And no one seems to agree with him that he soloed those characters. Yep. Uh, 
John Romita in 2010 is like Ditko did not solo Spider-Man. It was Lee and Ditko and the two hated each other. Yep. But they were definitely both writing. I know because they fought all the time. And that's how I know. And that would mean that definitionally that's a collective work. And then it gets exempt from all these rules. Mm. So again, if we don't change the rules, this is why Ditko does not have a chance on getting a lot of those. Or the Ditko estate doesn't have a chance getting a bunch of these back. Yep. Because it's a collective work. Right. We're going to put a pin in Doctor Strange for right now. Uh-oh. And we're going to talk about Ditko specifically because he's a weird dude. Yes, he is. And he appears to lie a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not going to get into his politics, which some of which I find reprehensible, but people can read that on their own. Ditko got weird. So it's worth noting that after Ditko left Marvel, he lived the rest of his life in Manhattan. And he worked and had his own workspace in Manhattan. And that's relevant because let's think about Manhattan real estate prices. So, someone tried to get a hold of him during the Spider-Man film era, the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi era. Mm -hmm. And Ditko is notoriously hard to get to talk on the record about anything. In 2012, Ditko made the claim that he never made a cent off of any of the Marvel movies that were published that time. Okay. He further claimed at different times and then would disagree with his own claims based upon reporting that he had made no money from Marvel since he left, which it would, it appears, be in contravention to his contracts. Because a lot of the time, if you're a big deal at these places, as part of your work for a higher contract, you, you renegotiate at one point and you're like, look, I bring you a lot of money. I want this new set of clauses on any character I create. And that's why Neil Gaiman is still involved in making the Sandman TV show, even though DC owns it. That's why um, uh, the Five Nights at Freddy's guy, for some reason, has veto rights over, like, his final cut privilege on the movie. Yep. Despite the fact, like, he's not a movie person. Yep. Right. You negotiate terms. And that's, that's, part of the deal of being a creative. I mean, none of this is me defending these rules, but these are the rules of the game. It's safe to say Ditko's getting back, like, kickback money off of these deals. Well, right? Like, he's getting, like, not kickback and illegal, but I'm just saying he's getting paid from these deals. And he has it as, I'm not getting it from that. Oh, no. To counter Boris as well, a reporter from The Vulture in 2016 interviewed his neighbor... And heard the and got this, and I'm going to quote her from the piece. One time, about ten years ago, so this would be 2006. Yep. I accidentally got a piece of his mail. Speaking about Ditko, I opened it and then realized it wasn't mine because that check had just too many zeros. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why he didn't work in that little office, and he's he's doing all right. Mm-hmm. So this is his neighbor in 2006 got his mail and he was getting royalty checks from someone that had 
quote, and this is a someone else living in Manhattan in the 2000s. So also not a not a very poor person yeah. being like, oh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So Ditko is getting money from somewhere. And it's worth noting that Ditko's independent work did not do well. Right. His well, late career political work did not sell great. No, it did not. I, I'm just trying to put that where he's getting paid and he's expecting that he, he's not connecting where that paycheck's coming from. He just realizes the paycheck's there. <sighs> and then he turns around and says, well, I didn't get paid from it because he honestly believes that kind of crap. And he's I, getting older. I don't want to... <laughs> I don't, don't want like, to try to figure out what Ditko was thinking. Yeah. You never want to try to figure this out. Ditko oh, okay. definitely had a chip in his shoulder and was notorious, especially like later in his career, of fighting with people. Okay. Like, he loathed Stan Lee for decades over what a lot of people were like, yeah, they fought, but it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. But maybe like Ditko very much like he quit Marvel allegedly because like his genius wasn't being appreciated is how a few people talk about it. <laughs> so. Doctor Strange. In my research, I found a story that is doing the rounds that I have no proof on. But it is a claim that is being made, and that is that Steve Ditko created Doctor Strange before Marvel published it, and that he wrote it separately <sighs> and brought it in. Yeah. And if that's the case, and he, it, this story claims that he was the original first writer and the first artist. So if all that's true, and he created it outside of his work for hire agreement, he has a case on that one. Yep. A lot of ifs. Yeah, how do you prove that now? Yep. I mean, yes. you'd you'd go into Marvel's paperwork from the era. Yeah, there has the paper trail will show somewhere somehow show that they got this from him. It just didn't magically show up on their doorstep. I mean, other people claim, and this is where it gets fuzzy because people have had different like stories. That I mean, I think we've all heard those stories where it's like. One of these two is definitely lying. Like, person one yeah. says, like, we had steak. Person two says we had fish. One of them's wrong or lying. Yep. Versus the ones where you're like, oh, it is very easy that people are all slightly misremembering or coloring a thing, and they could both be mostly right. So, other people involved, uh, Ramita and Kirby both talked about how you know, the Doctor Strange idea, like, kind of came internally. They were talking about a magic character. And then some people have said Kirby, like, had the first idea, but it was, like, at Marvel under their behest, so it'd be work for hire. Some people claimed Stan Lee came in one day in the typical Stan Lee of, like, gee willikers, I got an idea! And then just, like, listed <laughs> off stuff. As Stan Lee was apparently, like, just, he would just do this. So, Doctor Strange is one of the big characters. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of movies and stuff involving him. Yes. Right now. So, this, this has some potential, if it can be proven, 
obviously. Yes. So, I mean, the, 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 the center of all of these cases is what is work for hire and whether we like that definition. Um, going back to early its canon, the Kirby estate, uh, they actually made 45 claims to different comics companies, mostly Marvel and DC. And the, they included a grand total of, of contract terminations for 262 separate characters. And even though Marvel settled and appears to have paid out the Kirby estate, the appeals court found that it that found that the evidence that it was work for hire was quote overwhelming. Kirby did not create the artwork mm. until Lee told him to. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting that that was under pre nineteen seventy eight. You did not have to specify work for hire. Mm-hmm. So in those contracts, they didn't specify work for hire. But the court pointed out you didn't have to. Yep. So in 2014, we were all set to go to the Supreme Court and they settled. It's a sealed settlement. No one's talking. So very obviously, Disney does not want this to get in front of the Supreme Court and to change what the rules are for copyright termination. And in this instance, they ran the numbers. And they were like, you know, let's say it's a 10% chance of the Kirby estate winning. That would cost us a $100 billion. That means it's worth about $10 billion for us to set, like for us to pay them out. Yeah. To yeah. simplify the math, right? Like if you're, if you're, if you're like talking about that much money, you don't want to take any chance. Yeah. You have to, you have to bet for yourself at that point you have to figure what's the other side need or want yep and can we afford it exactly because we can't afford losing it it is worth noting right now that the court is overwhelmingly precedent is in favor of not changing this definition Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh the kirby one went through multiple like it went through multiple cases and every court found this is a work for hire agreement I mean, as much as reporters in the comic space talked about it being like rah rah good luck, they were not doing well. In the the DC slash DW versus Schuster case, same thing. Yeah, the court was like, no. It's yeah. also worth noting to get a little bit inside baseball. The current Supreme Court is even more corporate friendly yep. than the one was in the yes, That's exactly where I was going to go with this is we have to take a look at what the Supreme Court looks like at any given point in time to assume yep. who they are most likely to side with. Mm-hmm. Crazy to see how political the law can be. It, bananas, right? And, and that's Tobaroff's entire claim. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm fascinated about all that. So now, how long does something like this take? Well, I guess. Oh my God, they're going to be settling, right? Like they're going to be settling uh, out of court. Hard to say. They're going to make. They're going to make court appearances. They're going to go through this process to a point. So they'll probably. So my bet, 
with how much money Disney has and the fact that Disney actually kind of wants a precedent right now. And in fact, Mm -hmm. Disney has filed a lawsuit saying this needs to stop. We don't want to get sued every time someone thinks, hey, maybe we have a case. We don't want to have to pay all those lawyers. And that's actually what their lawsuits are about. Their lawsuits are basically saying, can we once and for all say that these work for hire? And unless we change the definition, they need to stop suing us. Yeah. Because if they get that that order, every time someone else tries to sue, Disney will be able to send a lawyer in for one day, and that lawyer will go, motion to dismiss, they don't have standing. And the, under this previous case, and the judge, if agrees with them, goes, yeah, they don't have standing, get out of here. Yeah. And then Disney has to pay for one day instead of months. That's yeah. worth the investment. 100%. So it very much seems like Disney's looking at the way the wind is blowing looking at how much money they have on hand and is like, I think we can fight them. It's worth noting that Tobaroff is, is currently representing like half of the people filing against Disney right now. Mm. Um, and I don't know it, for me to put on my observer hat. I think they just all want checks. I yeah. think they're just like, pay us to go away. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what this seems like. Like the patent yeah. trolls. To- I mean, I would say this is not as gross as patent trolls. I shouldn't. Yeah, I shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't compare it to them. But at the end of the day, they just want they want to check. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, Tobaroff speaks a big game about like we should change the definition. And I don't know if he believes that or not. I'm not going to try to assume his intention. I think we should actually talk about changing the definition. But. I mean, whether if he thinks we should change the definition, that's what he should say. Yeah. If he thinks that his his people should get paid and doesn't care about the definition, that's also what he would say. Yes. Yeah. The unfortunate part here is you have people making these claims, taking these companies to court. Precedence is going to be set. And then people with legitimate claims are going to be shit out of luck. Well, I mean, the argument has always been... Yes, and that's the way it's always yeah. been, because it is so hard for the little guy or gal to get their day in court. Yeah, yeah, right. Like all these names we're talking about, these are all like estates that have money in them. Yep. Yes. Right. Like it, we talked about on the show, they have a group of lawyers sitting there going, or a group of accountants going, "It's time to bring it up." Yeah. I mean, one of the kind of clever parts of the law is there are windows, right? These, if if they don't act, if they don't file within a certain window, they don't get to just like sit and wait indefinitely. There are certain windows you have to file within. Um, you have, I think it's there's a series of five year windows that we don't need to go into specifics over. Yeah, Hmm. we got two more things to touch on to wrap up. First of all, is Jason Voorhees because there's a case today on Jason Voorhees. And the second one was I want to talk about reporting on all this stuff because I have had to read have 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 had to read had to read so many brain dead takes on this by bad <laughs> reporters. Yep, I can imagine. So many reporters in our industry do not read carefully or closely, and it leads to and gives ammunition to these stupid online internet fights. That don't yes. know what they're talking about. I think the problem is more that reporters are, it's partially that, 
And it's also, they don't understand what they're reading. So they make some bold assumptions in their article or don't explain things properly. And, you know, the articles at the end of the day are shit, for lack of a better term. I, mean, I was going to say, then, the, then they're a bad reporter. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah, right? Like, yeah. you know, if you don't understand, or, like you, for example, have the leg up because you have that background. Well, but well, And I have... I have nine pages of notes and talked to three lawyers for this podcast yeah. today. See, there you None go, None of them right? were willing to go on, but all ones that I was like, can you clarify this? And there's still like, there's still a question I don't fully understand that I'm not representing to the audience. I like, I skirted around it because I don't fully understand of what if Ditko wins? Yeah. What mm-hmm. literally happens to like the Doctor Strange when it's out? I could not get a definitive answer. Yeah. There's there's but a lot of unknowns, right? Because now yeah. the claims you've you've opened that forbidden door, and who knows what's behind that door, yeah. right? Um, you know, but this is also a case of okay, reporters not being the best at reporting, and it's also a combination, in my opinion, of reporters trying to get the story out first and fast that they just don't know what they're reading. They They'd get like Cole's notes from someone and make an article out of it. Again, irresponsible. Irresponsible as fuck. But there's the difference between reporting, in-depth reporting 20 years ago versus clickbaits today. I mean, to their credit, it was only the like geek-oriented news people who were getting it wrong. Every single more traditional media outlet Got it right. But, you know, yeah. and this goes to show you there's something about this industry, you know. Who's to say? I mean, I'm going to name some names. But first, I want to talk about a case that is tied to this. Kind of. So Jason Voorhees and the Jason movies. Mm. That first idea, the first Jason script was written by Victor Miller. And he has been suing for copyright termination for that original script. He can't claim the movies because rules don't apply to movies. Right. He can claim for that original script, which would give him the Jason character. The entire question was, was that script written under for not for work for hire or not? What are you going to say, Boris? There's something similar happening when the Predator franchise. 100%. So, and for a bunch of these movies, it's worth talking about like how movies are made. And it's sometimes you get told, write me, write me a script about X, Y, and Z. And that might be work for hire, depending on your contract. But a lot of people write a script and they shop it around. And in those instances, you own that script and you own that idea. And as of September 30th, 2021, at like four in the afternoon, a court found in favor of Victor Miller and said, no, he, I was not work for hire. He wrote that script. That's his copyright. Yep. Mm. So it's his. So what's happened as a result of that? As a result, well, it's going to get appealed. It's <laughs> yeah. going to get appealed okay. and it might go before Fair the Supreme enough. Court. Um, if it goes before the Supreme Court, I think he would still win if he can afford to fight it. Yep. Which is part of why it will get, will get appealed, is because one of the strategies is you try to bankrupt the other side, because they can't right. fight you if they have more money. Um, he wants to reboot it. He basically said, I don't like half of the Jason movies out here. 
I'm the original writer. I want to reboot it, and I think I can make a better Jason movie. Yep. The, the brothers who made Predator, they, they're using the exact same method mm-hmm. to try to get their franchise back. Yep. And for these ones, it's literally always a question of, was this a work for hire contract or yep. not? All right. I'm gonna talk, because of this, this case and bad reporting. So certified forgotten who represents themselves as like a deeper reportage, and they had like five pages on this, got the definition of work for hire wrong. Oof. Uh, They confused work for hire and employed and and, and contractors who are not work for hire. They conflated those all a lot. So I posted on their blog, and if they would have me on their podcast, or I'll let them on this podcast, someone tell them. I would love to talk to them about it. Because I think it was an honest mistake for them because they seemed like they did their research, but they just caught me at the end of like a really rough day of bad takes. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yep. Uh, a lot of people talking about Disney are like, these people have such a good case. And it's like, no, they don't. They might have a case. But it's not like, this is not, there's, there's definitely a, a, a desire to frame it. I would argue as like, oh, the little guy artist versus the big bad company. Yeah. And maybe it is, but in pushing that narrative, you shouldn't lie. About, you, you can still push your narrative and not lie about facts. Yes. It's sensationalism, right? I think that's part of it, yeah. Like, honestly, you're going to get the clicks. You're going to get the attention. You're putting an opinion out, but your journalism is about investigating the facts. And if you don't know the facts then you have to attain them. Yep. Well, and, and, you know, representing things and, and like sharing them, right? Like part of your job is as a journalist, hundred percent to provide analysis mm. and thought on it. But bleeding cool said that this Jason Voorhees case was very similar to the Disney case. And it's like, I know you know what you're talking about because this is not, this case has no influence on the Disney case. You know that that's the first time that we've said that website's name in six years on this show. It's been six I years mean, since I, I've allowed that website to be named. I, <laughs> I, I, I look at what they're saying sometimes, just to be like, what, what take is coming from this yep. corner of the internet? Yep, because people read it. But God, so much of it's just like, so much of Bleeding Cool is just pressers. It is. It's a headline. It's headline clickbait. I mean, a lot of these, I think, are literally just like, they got the presser, and they posted it. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I would say 85% of geek, and it's probably other industries are the same, but let's focus on geek right now. That's all they do. They take a headline and post it and say, this is what we got from these people. It's very rare to find an actual article explaining anything nowadays. Especially in in terms that you can understand, like conversational terms. It's either going to be a deep dive that you feel unqualified for or a, a bad take, right? Just in general. I'm not, I'm not going to be specific. And I'm all right with adding the original release in your article. Yeah. But I still feel like there needs to be a summary somewhere. 
No, I, 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 I mean, I'm with you. I, I mean, maybe it's the circles I run in, but I've been curating a lot to avoiding stuff that's just this. It's why going back to Bleeding Cool or something boggles my mind. Yeah. Like, I like reading the Mary Sue. Not because I always agree with them, because I'll disagree with them. But very rarely are they just posting pressers. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a website that, in my mind, like really does a great job of, at the very least, while my opinion might differ from theirs, they do a good job of reporting the news, not just throwing the news at you so that you can interpret it as you wish. I Yeah. I mean, what are the other ones? Like, um, I don't know. There were so many. There were so many takes that were just like not aware of these nuances and not caring about like some of the larger ramifications, right? Like, if we were to redefine work for hire, that has like that has major considerations we have to talk about, right? Yep. Like, if all of a sudden, if all of a sudden, you know, Ditko and Kirby and all these estates can come back and get these get these back, which maybe they should. Like, I'm the first to agree that that case can be made, and I think we should redefine work for hire. I just don't know to what. Because, yep. like, should we let the one of the original writers for, like, like Fallout, which I think had, like, the original one had four or five writers? Mm-hmm. Should one of them be able to come and kill the Fallout franchise because they don't, you know, they don't want this? Exactly. And, you know, there, there's a lot of artists out there, as we said with, you know, Snow earlier, who have egos and don't like certain decisions. And, like, we'd have so many things being killed because people disagree with the politics. Yep, exactly. Right? Like, yeah, partisan politics. Yeah. It's not even partisan politics. It's literally just, like... Like, like uh, going back to Ditko, great example. He would have killed a lot of projects based on the politics. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Moore would have done the exact same thing from the other direction. Yeah. Right? Ditko's pretty far right. Moore was, is pretty far left. Yep. And both of them would have probably killed, like, Moore would have killed Watchmen 100% the oh. before Watchmen. We could have killed all of it. Yep. Yeah. None of that would have gotten made. None of it. Which None I'm, of it would have. You know, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't, but. Yeah. But who's he could have killed it? He would have. Who's well, to say? I mean, that's my thing. That's my thing, right? Is 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 <laughs> that should be part of this discussion of that these definitions should be changed, but we can't just like everyone gets their stuff back. Yeah. <laughs> no rules anymore. And it's like, all right, well, fucking, who owns Doctor Who now? <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. God. That's the name for the episode. Who owns Doctor Who now? With that said, <laughs> Phil, do your thing. Well, if you enjoyed what you just heard and you want to contact us and let us know what you think, you can track us down at www.itscanonpodcast.com. You can shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at It's Canon Podcast. You can email us at show at itscanonpodcast.com. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you find podcasts. You're going to find the It's Canon Podcast. And if you like what you heard, be sure to, you know, subscribe, 
leave rate and review if the platform allows it and uh, tell your friends about the show because we'd like them to join in with us too thanks for that honestly this thank you so much tyler this was awesome you know we didn't get to a conclusion but i don't think that was the point the conclusion at the end of the day what would you say tyler what what's the conclusion everyone's right we need a change in this arena i i think everyone i mean everyone disney loves how it is right now and disney's right of like with the way the rules are written disney gets all the toys yep i agree we should change the rules i just don't know what to exactly and it's it's not there's no simple answers that's the conclusion yep that's exactly guys with the most toys wins damn it phil that's pretty much how it is unfortunately all right it is the it's canon podcast the podcast where we talk about all things geek all things pop culture and the best part of it all is, is that it's all in canon he's tyler he's phil i'm boris good night <laughs>